Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Anne Brannan. I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America. And today we are discussing the murder of Mabel de Belém, who was born like in 1035 or so, and she died in 1079 when she got her head cut off by somebody she'd really made quite angry. Like, I mean, you can imagine, when do you go around cutting people's heads off? And she was lying in bed after having had a bath. So we're going to discuss the murder of Mabel de Belém. Although really, the story is not so much the murder of Mabel de Belém, which was kind of inevitable, but her terrible badnesses before then, and the terrible badnesses of her father. The inevitable consequences arrived (laughs) to Mabel. To Mabel. And then the de- dreadful badnesses of her son, because really the Debelems were notorious in Normandy for being really god-awfully behaved. And so that's our story today. That's what we're talking about. The House of Belem was a very prominent Normandy family. Really, when we're talking them, it's about the time of uh, Robert I of Normandy, who's the father of William the Conqueror of Normandy, who's the father of... Robert Curthose of Normandy, this like that whole time period. And the Belems had a have they had a nicely problematic origin. If you go and look it up, you're going to see very decisive things that tell you who the first of the double M's were the founder of the family, and it's going to contradict things all over the place. But by the time that we're dealing with them, they had a reputation for wickedness. Mabel's grandfather had been connected to Richard I, the Duke of Norwich, who's the Conqueror's dad. But then later he revolted, and then he had to beg for forgiveness uh, in bare feet with a saddle on his back, which I think is a very nice medieval detail. Nobody requires these kinds of things anymore. And as I, as a little dramatic ritual, I think it's really good, bare feet in a saddle. At any rate, so he was sad. And his son, William Talvas, who was um, Mabel's dad, had a vassal who was a vassal of another lord. Uh, you know how this goes. You can swear allegiance to um, lots of people, and then inevitably they go to war and you have to like you can't actually fight on both sides and so you piss somebody off in this case William Talvis was pissed off and the vassal who was um, William Fitzgerald supported the other guy in the in a dispute and William Talvis took it quite badly and so he invited William Fitzgerald to his Talvis's second wedding at which he had him seized and mutilated and blinded and then, you know, thrown on out. And he ended up, Giroy ended up being a monk. Uh, so this led to retaliation, <laughs> duh. And finally, finally one of uh, Talvis's sons exiled him from Normandy. I, I swear to God, you can't make this stuff up. So Mabel went with him. Uh, oh, and by the way, he had also, William Talvis had also murdered, had murdered his first wife, had his first wife murdered on her way to church because he didn't, he wasn't really in favor of that. <laughs> Not Mabel's mom, some other mom. So Mabel went with him and the Montgomerys took them in. We're still in Normandy. And Mabel ended up marrying Roger de Montgomery uh, sometime in the early 1050s. Now, Roger de Montgomery was a major counselor to Duke William, who was later going to be the conqueror. 
Uh, and Montgomery was not part. He didn't take part uh, in the invasion. He wasn't one of the many uh, counselors and no noble Norman knights who went with William the Conqueror and all those Percheron horses and went over and conquered England. He wasn't part of that because he stayed in Normandy running things. Fair enough. So William rewarded him. He gave him Arundel. He made him the Earl of Shrewsbury. So Mabel inher had inherited an enormous amount of land in Normandy, and Roger de Montgomery had a whole lot of land in England. We're talking about Arundel and his being the Earl of Shrewsbury. And so this was a really, really powerful match. They ended up, say, had a great deal of territory, and they also ended up having 10 children. So they must have gotten along to some extent, at least. More on that later, I do believe. So besides all the land, Mabel had apparently also inherited the Debelim cruelty and just plain badness. Now, we go back. We recall William Desjardins, who had been mutilated and blinded, at, you know, because he went to a wedding. This, this doesn't count as a blood feast because, first of all, he wasn't dead. But it does count as a dinner at which bad things were done to guests, which I, I think is kind of like the larger category under which blood feast comes. This is clearly a thing for the Normans, the, the, <laughs> the mutilating and blinding thing, because we saw that in the first crusade or um, uh, not the first crusade, the Albigensian crusade. Oh yeah. Was it Beijing? Do you remember where it is? There were so many battles. I'm sorry. I remember it was um, the guy who then they wouldn't let back <laughs> into England. <laughs> Montfort. Simon de Montfort. Simon de Montfort, right. Yeah, Simon de Montfort had a lot of prisoners blinded and mutilated. His Yeah, they were really into that. That This happens a lot. Uh, so we we recall him. And so there he is, off in a monastery. More on the monastery later. He's off in the monastery being a monk. Do we let things go then? Do the Belems say to themselves, hey, we have totally avenged ourselves on that family with the vassal who backed the wrong lord and should have backed us? No, 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 no. Mabel went for his son. Now, this was Arnold de Echauffeur. And she took a bunch of his lands. By the way, this is really basically what she spends her adult life doing is taking people's lands. But she took a bunch of his lands. She got William, the Duke of Normandy. He wasn't conqueror yet. She got him to confiscate them, and then she grabbed them. But later, William promised to give Arnold's lands back. And so Mabel decided to poison Arnold because, you know, so alas, 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 Arnold didn't fall for it, but her husband's brother drank the poisoned wine and it killed him instead. Luckily for Mabel, it wasn't like right there. It was one of those slow acting poisons. So he got quite some time, was quite far away from the castle before he actually keeled over. <laughs> I'm sorry, this was the moment where I just, you know... That show that happens in Hamlet, and it's always one of the weirdest moments on this on stage because it it's so it feels so contrived, right? It feels like it's hard to believe even in the realm of fiction. And <laughs> so when I I read that this thing had happened in real life, we always like to explain, but what the poison was, as we did for Con, Con Grande de Scala, where we explained how Foxglove works, and I believe in 
the one about abortion in Germany, where we explained oh, yeah. um, how they were doing. Unfortunately, we do not know what this poison was, and so we can't tell you. We like to tell you not so that you would use it, but so that you know not to eat it. At any rate, yes. So she killed her husband's brother instead, but she did manage to poison Arnold later, so she got him. And she, in general, also, she didn't like the clergy, but she especially didn't like the monks over at Saint-Evreux. Now, that's the monastery where William Fitzgerald had ended up as a monk. That's the connection there. Um, so the fact that her, yeah, it's the same monastery, but her husband really liked that monastery, but she didn't. And so... She couldn't, I don't know, just go poison them or whatever it might occur to her. So what she would do, and this would become a, this this is a weapon that is used a lot later in Tudor times. What she would do is go visit them with a whole lot of people. All the retainers that she could get. And the thing is, this is really expensive, isn't it? Because, you know, noble people show up on your doorstep. Hello, you are supposed to feed them. And you're supposed to feed all their retainers. And you're supposed to give everybody a place to stay. And you're even supposed to entertain them um, when we get to the tutors. I don't know if these monks are entertaining um, Mabel, but they might well be because there are entertainers running around. We just don't know, which we had... Wish we had the household accounts for Santa Rue, but we don't. Oh, well, at any rate. So um, she punished them by making them go bankrupt every once in a while. At one of those times, they may have made an attempt on her life or at least tried to make her sick because she um, ends up taking ill and having to leave. Yeah. Um, there's a piece of the story also then we're told, that piece of the story, I believe, and maybe they poisoned her and maybe they didn't, but that she got sick and had to leave, I believe, I had to leave, I believe. I don't believe the part where she makes herself well by suckling an infant who then dies from the poison, but sucks it all out of her. The reason I don't believe this is, is that I have a 21st century understanding of biology, and so I'm not buying that. But it's the kind of story that got connected to her. Anyway, she didn't die. They didn't manage to kill her. That is some Lady Macbeth level. Yes. Stuff right there. <laughs> oh, Mabel. Over the years, she managed to break a whole lot of noble families. She took their lands and she impoverished them. The amount of land that she ended up being having power over in Normandy is just immense. Yeah, she just if you were one of her neighbors and you would become her neighbor, you know, because she would steal the land next to you and then then you would be a neighbor. If you were one of her neighbors, it was sad. It was just sad. We talked about this with the Albigensian Crusade, but one of the most important things I have learned through the course of us doing Norman research is that their noble ladies are just as scary as the lords. Yes, they are. My goodness. We remember that they're Vikings. Holy cow, are they Vikings. They're just Vikings that came and stayed, which is worse. They're Vikings that came and stayed and learned how to eat French food. That's who they are. Yes, the Normans. And you remember we had a, what was the podcast where we explained, uh, Lindisfarne, wasn't it? We, we explained the Vikings. The Vikings yeah. did not, the Vikings thought that theft was really not good because it was cowardly. But raiding 
rating is good because you have, everybody has a chance. And this is a form of rating. You know, it's, it's not like she's going in the night and stealing things. She's doing this quite obviously by manipulating powerful people and the law. So it fits nicely into the Viking creed, I think. But not ours. No, Mabel. No, bad Mabel. All right. Finally, one of them hit back. Hugh Bunnell had lost his ancestral lands to her. He was the son of Robert de Yalego, and it was his castle that had been lost. And so a couple of years later, and this is interesting because it's not immediately. It's not immediately. It's a couple of years later. They've had to live with the loss of their lands and their impoverishment. He and some of his brothers broke into her bedroom and cut her head off while she was lying in bed, having gotten out of her bath. That's what they did. And they got away because they burnt a bridge behind them. Really, honestly, you can't make this stuff up. So he was a fugitive. He was a fugitive, and the people that were looking for him were William the Conqueror and Mabel's family, not the Montgomery's, not her husband, but Mabel's family and William the Conqueror. So Hugh ended up uh, living with um, living with Muslims, and he learned their language, he learned their customs. And what did he do with this knowledge? Did you read this part? Because I'm about <laughs> to tell you. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what he did with this knowledge was when Robert Curthose, who was one of William the Conqueror's son, sons, Robert Curthose was in the first crusade at the siege of Jerusalem. Hugh, the fugitive, went into service with him and he had he had 20 years of knowledge of the language and the customs. And so he helped Curthose against the Muslims. That's what he did. Huh. So although... He was a victim of Mabel. We don't want to think, oh, that poor guy. He had to kill her, but then he was so he was so nice. No, he wasn't. They're all awful. They're awful. Any of them that aren't awful get dead so fast you don't find out about them. <laughs> yeah, if they had survived, they would have been dreadful. Um, so yeah, that's what happens to Mabel and her um killer. Her son, uh, Mabel's son, Robert de Belem, whose whose um, father is Mon- is uh, Montgomery, was also very badly behaved, according to the chroniclers. With his father, Roger de Montgomery, and several other nobles, he rebelled against um, William Rufus, who was the king of England after William the Conqueror died. William had given England to William Rufus and Normandy to Curthose. So he rebelled against William Rufus and was in favor of Robert Curthos, who's later going to be helped by <laughs> by Hugh, his mom's killer. I, I, these people, they're all so interconnected. I just don't know how they managed to get through a day of their lives you know, with any kind of semblance of sanity. So this didn't end well, but William Rufus spared their lives. And we'll have more on William Rufus in a future podcast because William Rufus is going to die in a hunting accident. Please see air quotes around hunting accident. Because <laughs> it seems really weird. We'd be just like, we went out hunting and an arrow hit him and we don't know what happened because it seems highly unlikely, but that's what we've got. Back in Normandy, along with um, Henry of Normandy, who would later be. King Henry the First, 
Uh, Belém and Henry fell out with Robert Curthose, whom they had been supporting. There were castles besieged. There was a bunch of death. Uh, but then the Montgomery Belems finally made peace with Robert Curthose. And when he died, when his father died, Mabel's son inherited his mother's holding in Normandy. That's what he got. His warring with other Normans continued. Eventually, he was imprisoned for a rebellion against Henry I, and he died in prison. Okay, fair enough. His reputation as cruel and wicked uh, seems in large part to be due to the reputation of his family, because the whole family, it's like the, the, double, M, the double M's are like this iconic, badly behaved Norman family. Quite frankly, I don't see that they're being much worse than anybody else, but you know, that's that's where they're really, really bad, according to history. And he might be the inspiration for Robert the Devil, who's this legendary Norman knight who was the son of Satan because his mom made a deal with the devil. Might might be the inspiration for that. But there's some other contenders for that as well. I don't know that story. Yeah, I'm bored by it. But yeah, yeah so, so you have to go find the story of Robert. It's just, it's, a, it's you know, it's one of those legends. He He does bad things and None of which, none of which Robert de Belém actually did. Mabel de Belém is renowned as an especially cruel and wicked medieval noblewoman. But what we know of her, and Michelle is going to talk a lot more about this because we all know the kinds of things that Michelle likes to talk about. What we know of her comes from Orderic Vitalis and his history of the House of Belém has got to be colored by the fact that the monastery that Orderic belonged to, Saint of Rule had been founded by the Girori family. You remember that's where William Fitzgerald ended up. That's why, after he got mutilated and blinded. But definitely, you know, there's got to be a history there. I mean, she, um, Mabel ended up with an enormous amount of land and she obtained it by force and she might have poisoned some people and she certainly made the family angry enough that they murdered her in her bed. But there's an epitaph on her. There's an epitaph on her tomb, which Orderic talks to us about. Did you see this? Are you? Did you? Did you look at this? No, I'm sorry. I mostly read about order. No, Orderic. no, no, that's okay. I just wondered if I was telling you stuff you already knew. Let me see if I can find this because I want to read it to you. Now, the thing is, Orderic wrote this in Latin, and I. It took me a while to find this thing in Latin because you know I was like. This cannot be, this cannot be real. And the reason I'm thinking is this, is that what we have, if you go and look up her um, epitaph, you will find it and it's in translation. Do we still have her tomb or, or is this the only witness we have to this? No, the tomb is gone. The tomb is gone, although we've got um, a drawing of it that I probably will use. The tomb is gone, and what we have is Orderix giving us the uh, Latin. And I finally found the Latin, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, put this on you, although we might stick it in the show notes. But I finally found the Latin. And I want to just say, before I read to you the, the translation into English of the epitaph, I want to say to you that although the things which are said about her are more or less the things which are said in Latin, the Latin is really plain. And the English is totally fulsome. So don't think that this is the actual epitaph. This is like a pumping up of the Latin, which is much simpler. But I'm going to read you her epitaph. This is the kind of poetry that I just can't stand. It's like, 
<laughs> You'll see why. Sprung from the noble and the brave, here Mabel finds a narrow grave. But above all woman's glory, fills a page in famous story. Commanding, eloquent, and wise, and prompt to daring enterprise, though slight her form, her soul was great, and proudly swelling in her state, rich dress and pomp and retinue lent it their grace and honors due. The border's guard, the country's shield, both love and fear her might revealed, till Hugh, revengeful, gained her bower in dark December's midnight hour, then saw the Divis overflowing stream, the ruthless murderer's poignard gleam. Now, friends, some moments kindly spare for her soul's rest to breathe a prayer. And so the murder is in there, but it's all like for no reason at all. For no reason at all, Hugh, revengeful, for nothing, since there's <laughs> nothing in there, nothing, nothing, nothing there to tell you what he might want revenge for. What, is he just jealous of all her rich dress and pomp and retinue and her daring enterprise and her commandment and her eloquence and her wisdom? Where was she buried? She was buried in Trom. Uh, how close is that? It's in the Calvados in the Normandy region. So she's buried in Normandy. She died in Norm. She was born in Normandy. She owned a bunch of Normandy. She lived in Normandy. She died in Normandy, and she's buried in Normandy. She's a Norman. <laughs> That's who she is. She's a Norman. Yeah. No, the Latin. Like, if you look at the Latin, is so much shorter and just so much simpler. But it does say the same kinds of things. Uh, you know, she was she was really great, and um, and Hugh killed her for no good reason. Yeah, for no good reason. Yeah. Rude. Yeah, she died. There's no good reason. And um and Orderick himself was like the monks were, you know, saying nice things about her like for custom and not for reality is more or less what he says. <laughs> but Orderick Orderick did not like her at no. all. Did he, Michelle? No, not even Michelle, a little bit. Michelle. Michelle, do you have anything to say to us about Orderick, who has shown up in our okay. podcast, I think twice before this, has he not? So, yeah, so that's the thing. When um, when I was looking at this, I very quickly noticed that Orderick Vitalis, this is his third appearance for us. He showed up um, in the white ship. He is one of the sources for the white ship. That's right. Isn't he the one who thought that the white ship had crashed on account of the everybody was committing sodomy? Yep. Uh, yes. Yeah. Orderick, um, Orderick's the chronicler who tells us the white ship sunk because everybody was committing sodomy on board. <laughs> we're like, spoiler, is that why? No, it was because it was dark and they were drunk and they ran into a, a, a rock. That's why the white ship is really... You could have done it if you were completely pure of heart, except for the being drunk part, but sodomy had nothing to do with it. Anyway, yeah, so Ordrick, he showed up in the white ship. He showed up for the white ship, and then he was also our source at for the Halloween episode with that with that ghost story. That's right. He has a ghost story in his um in his history of Normandy. Now I want to and, and he's the main source for um our Mabel de Belem. I want to point something out here. It's like I went order it, da 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 da, da. order it, I saw um people saying I was generally considered, you know, to be a solid historian. Oh really? Because the three <laughs> times we've got him, I'm like, I don't think so. 
<laughs> so <laughs> I figured it was time for me to learn something about Orderic because, you know, this was the third time he'd shown up. And I really didn't know anything about him. So I went off and looked up stuff about Orderic. So he was born in 1075, which first of all is an important piece of information because he was a child when Mabel was killed. So he is connected and sort of has some firsthand information, but not really because he knows what he's, he's, he's connected to these people, but he knows what he's being told. He has no firsthand knowledge whatsoever. He was a little kid. But he is connected to this group. His father was uh, Odalarius, and he was a priest to um, Mabel's husband, Roger. So his dad worked for Roger of Montgomery. And after the conquest, when Roger gets given parts of shrewsbury so he gets given stuff over by wales because you know all the good bits of england had been doled up doled out by that point no wait 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 wait. he's also given arendelle and arendelle is is a really crucial, really nice um, important yeah, it's a it's a really crucial defense uh and it's good so he got arendelle and some stuff on the border yes um so that stuff on the border was a problem because you know the welsh weren't like going quietly no, we were badly behaved. I just want to point this out. Yay. Yay, yes. But he was apparently fairly good at, Roger, I mean, was apparently pretty decent at holding that because he manages to not lose it back to the Welsh. Also, Shrewsbury, I was completely, this is a total sidebar, but his castle at Shrewsbury must have been amazing. Roger, the castle that Roger built at Shrewsbury Uh there had been a defense there before um, because it's a it's an obviously awesome defensive site because the river Severin does this little like drop down and makes forms a bag and that's where the city is yes that's where the city is and what they do then is they build a castle at the neck of the bag so the um, only the only land route into the city has this defensive fortification. Right. It's a giant moat. It's a giant moat. It is absolutely the place to build a castle and to have a nice city behind it. If you've got high walls, um, it's really hard to scale because you've got not a lot of traction in the water. There's nothing left, really, of the Norman castle. There is still a castle there. If you look up Shrewsbury Castle, you'll find it, but it's it's much later. The Norman castle gets destroyed later. A later castle is rebuilt in the same location, mm. is what happens. But the dad... Odalarius is a really interesting dude because when he comes with Roger to England after the conquest, he A, gets married and B, gets a lot of stuff from the English church. And apparently he has guilt over both of these things. <laughs> this is really, un- how, how, is he not really a Norman? <laughs> like, <laughs> Has he's abandoning his birthright and being sorry for some stuff? That's clerical clerical marriage was not yet illegal when he marries this English woman, but it is on the outs. It's it's becoming frowned upon. Uh-huh. And actually is forbidden. So by the time Orderic 
is writing most of his works, the clerical marriage marriage has been forbidden because it was forbidden in the council, the first Lateran council of 1123. And then the prohibition was reinforced in the second Lateran council in 1139. So Odalaris apparently has some guilt about it. Not enough guilt, right? Because he's got three kids with her. So clearly whatever guilt he has is, you know, falling by the wayside when he goes back to visit his wife. He has three, three little boys with her in fairly rapid succession. Orderic is the oldest, and then Benedict, and then Everard. But Odalarius spends the rest of his life and his children's lives, he hauls them into it too, feeling bad. So he he sends poor Orderic, I feel so sorry for this kid, off to the monastery in Normandy that he doesn't speak the language. Oh my God, he's an English child. Yeah, he speaks uh... English and Latin. Because I think of him as a Norman, but that's later in his little life. Yeah. Huh. he When he's 10, he gets sent. His father sends him as a child oblate to the monastery in Normandy. And um, he does not speak the language. He talks in one of the kind of places in the history where he drops into autobiography. He talks about showing up and not being able to understand anybody. Wow. And having to learn Mormon French. So, yeah. So he goes back to his father's homeland, but it's not his homeland. No. In fact, he has those two names, Orderic Vitalis, because when he gets there, the the Norman monks look at him and say, that is a disgusting English name. And they give him a new name. So they call him Vitalis, not his English name. God damn. I know. I feel... I I did not know this. Thank you. I was fascinated. go and find this stuff. It's fascinating. So he, he gets sent over there as this, you know, sacrifice on the altar of his father's guilt. The dad's still not, still not feeling appeased. So he himself and the um, youngest son, they, they all end up being monks, basically. <laughs> what happens to the wife? Does he become a monk after she's dead or like while she's still in the process of being alive? The answer is we don't know, but we think, we think she must have been dead by 1180 because the children start getting doled out to other people to take care of by that point oh okay all right okay um so when uh orderic is five he gets sent to an english priest to um be taught to read and write okay so yeah okay and at least one of the people who works on orderic thinks that his mom must have been dead by that point because the five is awfully young to be being being sent off and and more importantly by the time he's 10 and he's being sent off when he remembers that and writes about it in his his in his historia he doesn't talk about a sad parting from his mother he talks about this really tearful parting from his father okay got it now his father could have entered a monastery even while his wife was alive but he would she would have had to agree to it and there'd have to be permission from the bishop yeah so one of the things that I found that I was, I, I mean, nerdgasm, <laughs> autograph copies of his work survive written oh, no. in his own no. hand. I know. Wow. I know. Wow. Are they in the, in the, are they in the library in Paris? Probably. I didn't, I, I, I we can check that. Oh, I always are. like to know these things. <laughs> so his 
his his interpolated copy that he wrote of somebody else's work, um, William of Humene, how do you pronounce this? J-U-M-I-E-G-E-S. He wrote... Humege. So this guy wrote a history of the Dukes of Normandy. And one of um, Oderic's first works... Orderick's first works is to copy that and interpolate it. Then he writes his own, the Historia Ecclesiastica. But both of those survive in his autograph copy and the copy he made of Bede's works. Oh, God. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I'm so excited. That, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Um, the other thing that I found that was really interesting. Uh, well, there's a couple of things that are really interesting. One is that in the under the Normans, for for all of their violence, there's this renaissance of writing history. They're really interested in right making sure that their version of events. <laughs> I suppose that would be the cynical, the cynical approach. <laughs> You could think of it as, oh my gosh, this is like one of the first renaissances. They're looking back to Josephus, who they actually really are using as a model. You know, we got to write some history. The other way would be to think, man, we want to make sure that our versions of events gets written down. But by the 1130s, one in 10 books being written was a history, which is a mind boggling statistic. Yeah, I did not know that. I love it that the Normans were all into recreating their history. Here's what we did. It totally was good and made sense and had nothing to do with being really, really bad. There's nothing. a whole bunch of them. William of Malmesbury, <laughs> John of Worcester, Henry of Huntington. There's, there's this whole, that's why we had so many sources for the white ship. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because yeah. <laughs> there's all these guys writing history, and his Orderic's Historia was was not never really lost. Some of these things, you know, we have refound them, but during their time, you know, a generation or two after they were written, they'd kind of fallen into obscurity. His never was. It was continued. Like like later, people came along and added stuff later. Um, it was copied in the 16th century, the early 16th century, because the 12th century script had become hard to read. So people were still wanting. And then it was printed in 1619. I am I'm flabbergasted by these two facts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a continuous history of the Normans. Yeah, that is being that people are coming back to. They're rereading it. They're reconsulting it. It's nine volumes. Okay. So when we talk about it being copied in the 16th century, that's like somebody's life's work. <laughs> it's, it's just mind This would have an enormous impact then in how it is we think about the Normans. Yeah. Because this is what Orderic told us. Although, to be fair, I don't believe that anybody kept thinking that sodomy is what brought the white ship down. But, you know, this this view of the devil ends as being like the worst of the worst is fed by this over a long period of time. Yeah, his version is definitely a very influential version. Goodness. Um, it is goodness, still has goodness. not been entirely translated and published in English. Mm. There is the scholarly edition um, was published by Marjorie Chibnall and 
it's it's the one that people go to now but it omits i think the first two books because they're they have nothing to do with the normans they're kind of like prequels that he wrote later where that are about the history of the world and so when she did her edition they made the decision not to to translate and publish those which means it hasn't entirely been published in english do you know has it entirely been published in french um I assume that version printed in 1619. Ah, might printed. Well have been. Let me look. Let me look oh, at what that could have been. That, that could have been in Latin. Let me look at the book here and see what it says. Okay, so here we got. Here we have it. So, okay, so between. 1503 and 1536, Don William Valen, a monk at St. Everule, copied of course 1 to 6 and 9 to 13 from the surviving autograph codice which he claimed could not be read because you know of the script uh and then it was published 100 years later in 1619 the first complete edition of the historia was published by andre du duquesne <laughs> du D-U-C-H-E-S-N-E. Yeah, Duchenne. That's funny. That is funny. The reason this is hilarious is that Michelle and I both have has prior doings with um, the uni Duquesne University of the Holy Spirit, spelled totally differently. This is Duchenne. But the very first thing I did when I got accepted was make sure to be able to spell the university's name. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people call it Duquesne. <laughs> not, not so the the complete it was published in complete uh completely in 1619 in five volumes which remained the basic printed text from which all subsequent extracts were derived until the 19th century and then it was printed again in the late in the mid 19th century and it remains the only complete edition of the entire text that has been published books one to 13 okay this thing is enormous and so influential so yes that's that's what i learned about <laughs> orderic our source for so many things i'm i have a, a acquired a couple books about him and i just figure every time he cops he pops <laughs> up i'll also circle back and read a chapter <laughs> He's going to show up whenever we talk about the Normans. This is what's going to happen. He's going to be around. You know, one of the things we like to talk about is uh, the ways in which our protagonists come down to us in popular fiction, and Mabel de Belem does not. No, I sure didn't find anything. Mm -mm, no. We know about her as an historical figure. Lots, there's lots of studies about her on lots of feminist studies and studies uh, concerning concerning Orderic and <laughs> his misogyny, actually. Uh, but yeah, she show, she's she's a subject for the writing of scholars. She's not a subject for the writing of novelists. I, gosh, I you probably could make her sympathetic, but you, it would really involve making sure that you're deeply in her point of view. 
what is her point of view? Because objectively, what she's up to is pretty <laughs> dreadful. But they're all pretty dreadful. <laughs> What's her point of view? How can you be so? I mean, it was like, What's your, I want some stuff. I think that's her point of view. Yeah, her point I want of, some stuff, and you've annoyed me. Basically. Her point of view is, if I do it, it's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd have to... You'd have to, you'd actually have to do it from the point of view of somebody else. But I don't think that you could even do it from the point of Hugh the murderer, because really, you could be really sympathetic to him until you got to the first crusade. And, you know, he was a traitor to people who had taken him in and taken care of him. That's kind of rude. No. So, no, no, won't work. Well, now I understand, though, why his autograph copies survived because he his work was so important and it was seen as being important mm-hmm. so from they, the beginning obviously yeah, yeah. they saved that stuff that just that just blew my mind when i read that because we have so few manuscripts that we know were written you know written out by the person who composed them we do have one piece of Chaucer's handwriting, and it's a little bit of a note that survives in French that he wrote um, as part of his job as comptroller of the wool trade. That's it. We, <laughs> we don't have this stuff. We don't have things. And he was important in his time, too. But no. And this is so much earlier than Chaucer. Do you know um, who was Orderic associated with that gave him such that made him be so known so early well he's he's writing the history within the context of the monastery as his like assigned job uh-huh so they're keeping they're keeping they're, they're keeping it yeah, yeah so it survives there <laughs> yeah if you go to wikipedia it's <laughs> modern historians view him as a reliable source i'm like okay Oh, okay. A reply source. Okay. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't actually associated. He wasn't actually associated personally with any um, great figures. He wasn't like in the retinue of somebody. When we were talking about uh, Sigurd, we were talking about a chronicler who was actually in on the scene. Orderick wasn't. But he did get to hear about things since he's at this monastery. People come by and whatnot. He certainly is is well read. Um, he's read a lot of stuff. He ends up writing a lot of stuff. Yeah, the ghost story wasn't the ghost story part of a travelogue. He relates that story as this is this thing that this priest told me, and it just happened like three weeks ago. But he's not like his dad. His dad was, you know earlier in his life was the parish was the, what the the household priest a household priest for roger montgomery um and there's you know there's a discussion in here about child oblation that this was a thing you know child sacrifice it, it's not all that uncommon no it wasn't an unusual thing okay one of one of the people working on him is t- talks about his real mixed feelings about being sent away by his dad like this 
Yeah, he didn't have a lot of choice about that. But so he's a monk. He remains a monk. He lives in the monastery. He does do some traveling, but uh, that's where he's at. And he writes a history that never gets forgotten. That's just so unusual. Yeah, there's there's a well. This is this is just random, and we don't necessarily have to include this, but it's fascinating. Orderic's detailed information about Odalaris's promise of money and land highlights a common feature of such ceremonies at which family members would be present to give their consent, the laudatio parentis. Children would accompany their fathers so that in due course they could pass on knowledge of the event. He relates this, this oral culture thing where little kids get taken along to important ceremonies so that later on in the future, they're able to give firsthand witness to the agreement. In fact, he, he goes on to say that um, sometimes the kids would get slapped at this event to make sure they remember it. Right. And this is the distinction in living memory, because yes. if they're there, then the living memory is longer than it would be if there was no one, if there wasn't a child there who's going to be living longer than the adults. Yeah. Huh. I had not heard of that. Thank you. Isn't that fascinating? They get, they yeah. get brought along so that they are able to provide this oral culture continuity about important agreements that has absolutely nothing to do with mabel but i thought it was like a really fascinating sort of moment where the oral culture and the written culture are at this moment of uneasy interaction we're gonna write stuff down but we're also gonna slap a kid to make sure they remember it <laughs> well it hasn't got to do with mabel but it does have to do with, with um orderic so yeah anything else on mabel I had practically nothing on me. <laughs> Mabel de Belen. So that is our, uh, that's our explanation and discussion of the murder of Mabel de Belen and why it happened. And the whole phenomenon of the creation of the de Belens as a kind of iconically god-awful Norman family, way above the god-awfulness of all the other Norman families. And so they're very special in that way. And so we honor them on True Crime Medieval because they committed a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> and the next time that you hear from us, we will be discussing the Victual Brothers, because we're going back to piracy, because, you know, you need some pirates. You need some pirates every once in a while. So we're going to have Swedish pirates from the 14th century. Ta-da! <laughs> awesome. I don't know anything about this. This will be great. And now for something completely different. Swedish pirates from the 14th century. Swedish pirates are not all that far away from, like, the Normans, who are basically Vikings. Yeah, whips one of the things we'll have to discuss. The difference between Swedish pirates and Vikings. Let's find out. <laughs> now, this is a whole family which is really badly behaved, and that's also something I, I enjoy the badly behaved families. Why look, here was one, the Debelems. So So that's uh that's all for us today. This has been true crime medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, but with less technology. We're on Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, any place you can listen to podcasts. And you can also go, if you go to our site, you can click directly on the link and download it from there. Please leave a review. We'd appreciate that. And you can reach us at 
truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word, where you can find the show notes, which are written by Michelle, the transcripts, which are done for us by Lori Dietrich. You can click on the podcast link and hear it from there. And you can also reach us all through the webpage and you can leave comments. We would love to hear from you. And if you have um, medieval crimes that you'd like for us to discuss, to discuss, please let us know. We'll take it under consideration. And please leave a review in any of the places where you can uh, leave them. It helps to get other people to know who we are. And you can also tell your friends because we're all medieval crimes all the time, except for when we're going to do some early modern because we're just, we're going to expand. So that's, uh, that's all for us. Bye. Bye. Bye.